0: Good morning, I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to two texts, first from Isaiah chapter 9, one of the several prophecies of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that we find in these chapters of Isaiah uh, from 7 through 10. and. Uh, through 11 really, and then on to the culmination in 12. But I'd like to read first from Isaiah chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 1 through verse 7 and then turn over to John chapter 3 and read there verses 1 through 21. So let us give attention to the reading of the Word of God. First from Isaiah. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shined you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then in John chapter 3, another text that speaks of the son that was to be given, that as we come to this text, had been given and had grown to be a man speaks of darkness and it speaks of light. In some ways, it is an echo of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter nine. But I'm gonna begin in verse one of John chapter three. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, "'Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, Nicodemus said to him, "'How can these things be?' Jesus answered him, "'Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things?' lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let us pray. Father, be with us now, I pray, as we consider your word. Help me to speak words that are true. And Lord, I pray for your, the work of your Holy Spirit that you would be with us and that you would grip our heart with the reality and wonder and glory of the gift that you have given us in the coming of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might not perish, but have everlasting life. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. Several years ago, when... Focus on the Family would issue a new book of Christmas stories every year. They were edited by a man named Joe Wheeler and called Christmas in My Heart. I started getting a new book every year and I would read the Christmas stories, which were largely fictional stories, but were very heartwarming. And in the process, I developed a liking for Christmas stories. I'm going to read a Christmas story to you now before I comment on what the Bible has to say because I think it engages us with the wonder of the love of God to us. So this is a true story, not a fictional story, and it comes out of another book, not one of the Christmas in my heart, but it is a story by a lady named Nancy Dahlberg, who wrote about an event that took place for her and her family one Christmas day in a place called King City, California. And I'm gonna read it. She writes, it was Sunday Christmas. Our family had spent the holidays in San Francisco with my brother's parents, but in order for us to be back on Monday, we found ourselves driving the 400 miles back home to Los Angeles on Christmas Day. We stopped for lunch in King City. The restaurant was nearly empty. We were the only family and ours were the only children. I held Eric, our one-year-old, I heard Eric, our one-year-old, squeal with glee. Hi there, hi there, he said. He pounded his fat baby hands, whack, quack, quack, on the metal high chair tray. His face was alive with excitement, eyes wide, gums bared, and a toothless grin. He wriggled and chirped and giggled, and then I saw the source of his merriment, and my eyes could not take it in all at once. A tattered rag of a coat, obviously bought by someone else eons ago, dirty, greasy, and worn. Baggy pants, spindly body, toes that poked out of would-be shoes, a shirt that had ring around the collar all over, and a face like none other, gums as bare as Eric's. Hi there, baby. Hi there, big boy. I see you, buster. My husband and I exchanged a look that was a cross between what do we do and poor devil. Our meal came, and the cacophony continued. Now the old man was shouting from across the room, do you know patty cake? a boy, do you know peekaboo? Hey, look, he knows peekaboo. Eric continued to laugh and answer, hi there. Every call was was echoed. Nobody thought it was cute. The guy was a drunk and a disturbance. I was embarrassed. My my husband, Dennis, was humiliated. Even our six-year-old said, why is that old man talking so loud? Dennis went to pay the check, imploring me to get Eric and meet him at the parking lot. Lord, just let me get out of here before he speaks to me or Eric. I bolted for the door. It was obvious that both the Lord and Eric had other plans. As I drew closer to the man, I turned my back, walking to sidestep him and any air he might be breathing. As I did so, Eric, with his eyes riveted on his new friend, leaned far over my arm, reaching with both his hands in a baby-pick-me-up position. In that split second of balancing my baby and turning to counter his weight, I came eye to eye with the old man. Eric lunged for him, arms spread wide. The old man's eyes both asked and implored, "'Would you let me hold your baby?' There was no need for me to answer because Eric propelled himself from my arms into the man's. Suddenly a very old man and a very young boy consummated their love relationship. Eric laid his tiny head upon the man's ragged shoulder. The man's eyes closed and I saw tears hover beneath his lashes. His aged hands full of grime and pain and hard labor gently so gently cradle my baby's bottom and stroked his back. I stood awestruck. The old man rocked and cradled Eric in his arms for a moment and then his eyes opened and set squarely on mine. He said in a firm commanding voice, you take care of this baby. Somehow I managed, I will from a throat that contained a stone. He pried Eric from his chest, unwillingly, longingly, as though he were in pain. I held my arms open to receive my baby, and again, the gentleman addressed me. God bless you, ma'am. You've given me my Christmas gift. I said nothing more than a muttered thanks. With Eric back in my arms, I ran for the car. Dennis wondered why I was crying and holding Eric so tightly, and why I was saying, my God, my God, forgive me. Well, that's not my sermon. But I will say this, that is a story of the impact of a child who brought light into the life of a man whose life was enfolded with darkness in many ways. And both of the texts that we have read today have that similar theme, how God so loved the world that he sent his son as a baby to become our savior. God did not despise us in our darkness, but loved us and condescended to have his son come and take our place on Calvary's cross that we might be saved and have eternal life. Consider this in the two texts that we have read. Look at Isaiah chapter 9 for just a moment. Let me say that this text was written by Isaiah in the context of the threat of the Assyrian invasion that took place in the 700s BC, 700 years before Christ. If you read the early chapters of Isaiah, you see God's complaint against the Jews, how they had fallen into idolatry by and large. There was a remnant among them that hadn't, but by and large, they had fallen into idolatry. They'd exchanged the worship of God for the worship of virtually anything else that they sought meaning in. And God had brought judgment and was bringing judgment. But in the midst of the judgment, in the midst of the condemnation, He sends his prophet with a word of hope. He says that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. And he goes on and talks about the greatness of the joy that came, would come, by God's act of rescuing a people for himself. And the surprising thing is, that it says he would do it through a child. Notice in our text, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it, and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. No Davidic king that sat on the throne of Judah or even in Samaria, the northern kingdom, would fulfill this promise. But the Jews at the time of Jesus were still expectant, they were under the heel of the Romans. But they were still expectant. But what did they expect? Well, if you read this text, you would think a great military leader was going to come, wipe out the Romans, and free them in that way from the darkness of their captivity. It's not all this says, but it can be interpreted that way. This one who would come, we're told in the text, was a wonderful counselor. I heard, I heard Brian Salter say quote from a, a devotional that Paul Tripp had sent out this week where he spoke of each of these titles of the Lord Jesus Christ who would come, this child that would be given, a son that would come. He is the mighty counselor. Our sin makes us stupid. You believe that? Our sin makes us stupid. Read the Bible. It says that. You know, read Romans 1. It says that when people refuse to honor and give thanks to God, that he gave us over to a futile mind. I was struck yesterday in the text that some of us studied in 1 Timothy chapter 6, how those false teachers who were ministering in unbelief just to get money, they were stupid. (laughs) They didn't have any truth. The wonderful counselor came to give us truth, absolute truth, true truth, to use Francis Schaeffer's terminology, truth that we can base our lives in. Our sin makes us weak. Romans 5, 8, and the following verses there, talk about not only that we were sinful and God loved us and sent his son to die for us, but we were weak. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, but the one who came would be a mighty God who is able to save us in our weakness out of his love. A peculiar title is Everlasting Father. Uh, We don't believe, we believe in the Trinity. Three separate persons within the Godhead, in the mystery of the Trinity, one God in three persons. He is not saying here when he calls this son, this child, uh, the everlasting father, that he's not teaching modalism, that somehow this is God the Father that is come now. No, I struggle with the mystery of the Trinity like anybody who's honest does. But what he is saying here is what Hebrews chapter 1 says, that the one who came was the perfect representation of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Not that we are the same person, but that we are the same character. We, have, we are the same God in the Godhead, in the mystery of the Trinity. And we need, we need such a Father. As when we relate to that word Father, some of us think of it in a different way. I had a good father. I remember sitting in a barber shop one time and hearing one of my father's co-workers, my father wasn't there, but one of his co-workers happened to be there and and, uh, somehow he said something, well, that's Franklin Richter's son. And he said, you know, Franklin Richter is the finest man that I ever met. But even though he was a fine man, he was not a perfect father. Some of us had men that were very imperfect or perhaps altogether absent. I had a good father, but one who was in some ways distant relationally. But here, when Christ came, he came to show us a father who, came, who seeks us in love, who cares for us, and protects us and shelters us and promises that even though he will allow us to go through difficult times and things in this life, that nothing will separate us from his love, and that one day we will be with him for all eternity, who place our faith in him, and he is the Prince of Peace. The Jews did not see this peace, not in a military sense. No, he came first to bring a greater peace, a peace between sinners and God now he will come again and if you read revelation 19 you will find there the text that begins i saw heaven opened and a white horse and he who sat upon him is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war and his name he has a name upon him king of kings and lord of lords and one day he will come and every enemy will be made his footstool and all things will be made right but we await that in the meantime he has come this one who was promised this child that would be born this son who was given to us who is the wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace we know That this and the other words of Isaiah's prophecy and in fact all of the prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled in the coming of that child born in Bethlehem of the Virgin Mary conceived not by a human father but by the work of God's Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary who was born in the stable of Bethlehem. He is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And perhaps you've read, as I have, uh, in Josh McDowell's old book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, that uh, speaks of, if if one person had only fulfilled, and I forget how many the exact number was, but it was a very limited number of the prophecies of the Old Testament, that the chances of one man fulfilling all of those prophecies was about like if you covered the state of Texas, I think knee-deep with Silver dollars, but you painted one of them red and then you stirred it in really well and the chance of one man fulfilling all those prophecies is the same as your chance of reaching in and on the first draw over the state of Texas, knee deep in silver dollars, pulling that one out. This man, Jesus, this child born in the stable in Bethlehem is this promised son this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting Father, this Prince of Peace. We come to John 3 and we find this Savior, this Son, this one who came from heaven in conversation with a man that may be like some of us are a man who knew about Jesus, who knew many things about him, but who did not really understand him and did not know him personally. So we find this ruler of the Jews, we are told, a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus and uh, in a rather cryptic way was asking him, how do I know God? There was a man of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Is that a question or a statement? It's a searching It's obvious we want to know more. I want to know more. I need to know more. And in Christ's conversation with him that follows, it is clear that he needs to know more. He's a teacher in Israel, but he does not understand the significance of that one who would come in fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. I'm sure he must have known of Isaiah chapter 7, and it seems to me that what we have here in John three in some sense, echoes some of the themes of John chapter seven, this child, or I mean, of, of Isaiah chapter seven. This child who would come is no ordinary child. no he is extraordinary, supernatural. He is the mighty God. Jesus says, "No one." can tell you the absolute truth about these things, except the one who's come from heaven. The one who is the son whom God has given in love, that we might not perish but have everlasting life. You see the theme of darkness that is emphasized, particularly uh, not only in the, the ignorance, if I may call it that, of Nicodemus, but also of the darkness The moral darkness that keeps people from wanting to know him, to even seek him. And it also speaks of light, the light of life in Christ that comes. Let's consider this for a moment. Some of the things that we see and very clearly set forth in the fuller revelation of the New Testament. In John chapter 3 is the fact that we are all sinners. We're all sinners, that's our darkness. Along with the darkness of our ignorance, every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And I fear that in our society today, we do not take much account of the issue of sin. We do not take it seriousness. Seriously. But notice what Jesus says here. That the one who does not know him. The one who has not placed his faith in him. Is condemned already. Condemned to perish. Condemned to an eternity of separation from God. In Ralph Davis's book Stump Kingdom. Which is about those chapters in Isaiah. Chapters 6 through... Twelve, I believe, he tells a story, he repeats a story that Paul Cook had told in an article in the Banner of Truth magazine. Paul Cook had, uh, was in England where they travel on trains a lot, I guess, and he missed his train, so he was standing on the platform waiting for the next train, and he fell into conversation with a man, and the man told him a little of his history. This man had been a bomber pilot in the Second World War. And he said this, he said, you know, the the PR that was put forth was that we only bombed troops. We only bombed military installations, but that's not true. We bombed the cities and we killed women and children and boys and girls and this man was riddled with guilt because of his complicity and participation in such things. He tried to relieve his own sense of guilt by carrying around peppermints in his pocket and giving peppermints to children wherever he saw them. And at some point, he started going to church, trying to find an answer to the weight of his guilt But this is what he told Paul Cook. He said, I heard all of these stories about this love of God, but it was so amorphous. I needed to hear about the reality of the anger of God and how it could be dealt with. That's what Jesus said he came to do. That's what the Father sent him to do. He uses the reference from, from, uh, from Numbers. I think it's Numbers 19. I may be wrong about that. Of Moses putting the bronze snake image on a pole and those who looked to it would be healed. And he said in John chapter 3 so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And what's He mean there? In John's Gospel, to be, for Him to be lifted up is always a reference to the cross. In John chapter 12, He says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, just before His crucifixion, that Satan will be cast out. He's speaking here, not yet in as full of terms as we can find in other places in 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 the New Testament. Or even in the Old Testament in texts like Isaiah chapter 53 or Psalm 22. About the fact that this Messiah who would come, this child, this son who would be given, this one would come to die. In Hebrews chapter 10 Referencing one of the Psalms, the writer of Hebrews says, when Jesus came into the world, he said, quoting one of the Psalms, with sacrifice and and offerings, you were not satisfied, so you gave me a body. And it's clear that that body was given to him, that he might grow to the cross of Calvary and take our sin of all who would ever look to him in faith upon himself suffer its punishment and satisfy its penalty there that as 2nd Corinthians five twenty one says he who knew no sin was made sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God when he hung on the cross he cried out it is finished the debt is totally paid for all who had looked to him in faith the way that we deal with the burden of sin The reality of sin, the darkness of sin, is by looking to Christ and accepting his death as our penalty, receiving him as our Savior and our Lord. He says more than that. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see what he's saying here? He's saying God didn't just love the Jews. Precious as they were to him. God loves people of every nation, tongue, and tribe. God loves the old man in the diner in King City. God loves... Brian Chapel tells a story that he heard from a missionary of, a, of an African man named Gaborone. Gaborone lived in the place where this missionary lived, but he had no interest in the gospel. But he made his living by rolling cigarettes and selling the cigarettes one by one. Gaborone came to the missionary before he was due to leave the country and asked if the missionary would give him a Bible. And the missionary knew what he was gonna do with that Bible. He was going to tear the pages out and roll cigarettes. (laughs) So the missionary said, I will give you the Bible, Gaborone, if you will not tear out and roll any page until you have read it. And Gaborone agreed. A man who had no interest in the gospel. Some years later, that missionary was back in Africa at a conference, and he was so surprised to see gabarron sitting up on the podium and i don't know whether it was at the podium or afterwards talking but the missionary then understood what had happened gabarron said a missionary gave me this bible and i read and i rolled through matthew mark luke and when I came to John chapter 3 and read John 3.16 God gave me grace to believe. I knew he had given his son for me. He would say the same as Paul says in Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live I live by faith in the son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. Christ is God's gift of love to every one of us who sit in darkness, who will look to him in faith. Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know that Christ came in love for you? Nancy Dahlberg wept because she realized that her heart was not filled with love for that old man, but God, who looks on us and sees something much more revolting, set his love upon us and gave us his Son to be our Savior. We received the benefit of his coming. By placing our faith in him. Have you done that? Have you trusted that he came? Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting father. Prince of peace. Out of love. Such love that he did not spare his own son. But delivered him up for us all. Have you trusted Him? Have you received Him as your Savior and your Lord? If you have, then the words of Isaiah ought be true for you. Now, I will confess that we don't always live in in the same level of faith. And sometimes our hearts, even as Christians, can grow cold. But brethren, I would encourage you to remember... That in our darkness, God has given us a child, a son who would come to be our savior. And notice what it says in that text in Isaiah. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest. You know, years ago I read a different story, I won't tell you what it was, but it had a reference in it, in which one person said, said, uh, referring to a particular event said, that's when Christmas came that year. That's when Christmas came to me that year. I think every one of us who knows him yearns for that, yearns for that quickening of faith that renewal of hope that assurance that God gives if you know him set your eyes upon him if you know him don't be so engaged with all the hoopla of Christmas which may be fine and fun But don't let that be your all. Run the race with your eyes fixed on Him. Consider these things that we find in His Word and rejoice in Him. If you don't know Him, I would encourage you to do what Gaboron did. Take His Word and begin to read it. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in the process, ask the Lord to open the eyes of your heart to realize who he is and what he came in love to do for you. This is God's incomparable gift of love to us. To you a child is born, to you a son is given, and nothing will separate you from his love if you've trusted him. You may go through times of darkness in the circumstances of your lives, but he promises that if we set our eyes on that, which is not just worldly and circumstantial, but upon him, that he can give us hope. And fill us with the joy of that wondrous gift of love that's been given to us. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would fill us with the joy of the coming of the Lord to be our Savior. And Father, I pray that that joy would not be contained in our own hearts but that we would overflow in our love and compassion and concern and practical help to those round about us. To those that are lonely, oh Lord, let us be a company encouragement. To those that have need, help us in love to reach out in practical ways to satisfy that need. Lord, help us to know your love and to overflow with it. For in this way too, our joy is increased. And Father, if there are those here who do not know you, I pray that you in this season would open their eyes by the work of your Holy Spirit in their hearts that they may turn from darkness and that the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ would shine in their hearts, in all our hearts. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.